today, before we get into our passage, uh, I want to back up just a little bit from what we have just uh, heard Max McLean uh, read to us. Uh, I want to back up into chapter 3 and just kind of cover something there. As I was working my way through Mark uh, over the past couple weeks, this is one of those passages I highlighted and even wrote a little note in my scripture notebook of to myself that I needed to deal with this in a sermon, even though it wasn't technically covered. Just a reminder, too, if you don't have your little scripture notebooks, feel free. There's some in the back. There's some up here. Uh, I said to my children before we left this morning, don't forget to grab yours. And one of them, I won't say which one, said, I don't even have one. You have been offered. So if you need one, now they're looking at each other like, who said that? So if you need one, pick one up, take it home. If you're going to use it, mark in it, write in it. All of those things, get a little bookmark, follow along with us. If it is a passage in here that we are not covering between weeks, that's a great thing to read during the week. You can read those passages as well. So I encourage you to take one and to use it. The passage that I want to cover is on page 16, if you have your little notebooks. Uh, chapter Mark chapter 3, verses 20 uh, down through 30. Uh, you will see it there on the screen. And I want to just talk about it real briefly because I think it is worth us uh, talking about as we do this. And so chapter 3, verse 20, says, Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard, the, uh, heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he is out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them, and again spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. He can then plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin because they are saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, this little phrase here in verse 29, Heather, if you go to, to verse 29 to put it up there for us, this little phrase is the one that, the reason that I want you to see this, the reason I want to take just a couple minutes to talk about it, because it's one that sometimes as, as children, some of us have been taught what this verse is about, and I just want to take a moment to kind of explain the way that I read this verse and the way that the commentaries that I read read this verse to try to help you kind of understand what's going on here. Jesus makes the statement, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And that kind of brings up the question of what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Last week, if you remember, we talked about blasphemy. And I gave you a definition, kind of a basic definition of what blasphemy is. The blasphemy is to say something untrue about God or, or and, and or, to claim that another God is God. That was our definition last week of blasphemy. So what does Jesus mean here in verse 29 to say blasphemy against 
the Holy Spirit. So let me kind of explain this the, the best way that I can. I think for us to understand this passage is, is we have to kind of understand in this passage that the scribes are looking at the world kind of divided into to two columns. Okay, I'm a, I'm a spreadsheet kind of person, but divided into two columns. Column A are the works of God or the things of, of God. Column B would be the works of Satan. And so we can go back and we, you can flip back through what we have read already and to say, if we were to look at the works of Jesus and we were to decide which one of these columns do these things fall into, we could go back to chapter one and just, I'm just kind of cherry picking some things here. If you go back to chapter one, we can see that when Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water. What happens? God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Does that sound like a God thing or a Satan thing? That's a God thing. These, just so y'all know, all of these answers are going to be God things, okay? Just a heads up, all right? Then we can kind of walk through after that. We begin to get it to, and I, I mentioned last week how important for Mark healings are. We can, go, we can start seeing these healings still. Well, we're going to talk about this here in just a moment too, but he calls his first disciples, then he heals a man of an unclean spirit. So what do we think that is? If you're casting out an unclean spirit, God thing, Satan thing. God thing, okay, good. Thank you, Rita. Y'all are getting, there's gonna be a pattern. I've already given y'all a clue about it. You keep uh, moving on. We have another healing where he goes into Capernaum and there Peter's mother-in-law, he heals her. That's definitely a God thing. Heals his mother-in-law. All right, I already gave you the answer to that one. So uh, heals her, then later on he cleanses a man with leprosy, God thing, Satan thing, God thing. All right, I'm gonna y'all. I'm gonna keep asking until y'all get until y'all know what I'm doing. All right, uh, we then move into where we were last week. The man's lowered through the roof. He forgives his sins. He tells him to get up. God thing, Satan thing, God thing. Thank you, thank you, Caden. All right, and we go through. Where are we? We uh, then we get into chapter three. There's a man with his hand withered. Is the next healing. God thing, Satan thing. God thing. Okay, y'all see where we're going? So this is what's going on. The high priests are looking at all of these things and they're saying to themselves, is this man doing things of God or is this man doing things of Satan? And when they look at it, they come to the conclusion that Jesus is doing the things of Satan. And so what Jesus is saying them, to them here, and this is what I want you to hear, he is saying to them, if you look at my life and you see all the things that God is doing and you are so far from the heart of God that when you look at these things, you see the works of Satan, there, there is no hope for you. The Holy Spirit has been working. The Holy Spirit's been healing. The Holy Spirit's been touching. The Holy Spirit's been working through me to do all of these things. And you look at these things and you don't see God then the conclusion is. The conclusion goes to verse 29. This is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And if you're so far from understanding what God looks like in his action in the world, then, then is there hope for you? Okay? That's what I believe this verse is saying. Now, if, if, just, if we want to get a little more personal... 
This is what Jesus says in this passage, but we could also ask the question, if there is someone who is doing things that are obvious works of Satan over and over again, and we look at that person and we say, well, that's a man of God or a woman of God, that is a problem as well. And so Jesus reminds us, when we look at these things, these are the questions that we, at, that we ask and that we look for. Is our heart attuned, aligned with God the creator in such a way that when we see God work, we know that God is working? Okay, you with me? All right, that has nothing to do with my sermon. Just so you know, that's just bonus material. One of those things I didn't feel like we, it's gonna tie in a little bit, but anyway. All right, so let's go, let's get into chapter four. Um, in doing that, we're going to, before we get into chapter four, I wanna kind of set up where we are going. Because we've already heard the passage read to us, I want you to kind of see something that Mark is doing here. So if, you, if you've got your little notebooks, we're gonna use them quite a bit today. But Mark chapter one, if we go back to the beginning of the gospel, I want you to see some of these things that are happening. It says, as he, who is Jesus, passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. This is the, the beginning of his call to disciples. Okay? After this, one of the passages we didn't cover, but after this, if you remember, he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, to me, that's a whole nother sermon, and some of you have heard me preach that sermon, but if you haven't, this is a place that you need to highlight and number some things in your Bible, because I believe Mark gives us one of the best pictures of what it is to be a disciple. That to be a disciple of Jesus is, first, we follow him. So follow me, and I will make you. I am going to make you into something new. Okay, so what is it to be a disciple? Someone who follows Jesus, someone who Jesus has made new, has changed their lives. And then what's the third piece? Fishers of men. I'm going to give you a new vocation, a new job. Your life has changed. I'm going to give you something new to do. To be a disciple is to be someone who follows, whose life has been changed, and has been given a new job. And I think in your little scripture notebook, you need to highlight those three, and then I would number, mine are numbered, one, two, and three. It gives it right there for you. So, that's right after this passage, but I underlined a word. What's the word I underlined, or two words? The sea, okay? If we go on in the story, into chapter two, it says Jesus went out again beside where? The whole sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Okay, right after this, we have the call to Matthew. So the first time we're near the sea, we have the call of the first disciples, and the understanding for the first time in Mark's gospel of what it is to be a disciple. The second time we have it, we have the call of Matthew. Then in chapter three, it says to us, Jesus departed with his, with who? The disciples to where? The sea, and a large crowd followed him from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea. Right after this passage, Jesus commissions the 12. I show you these things because I want you to see something that I believe Mark is showing us in his gospel, that when Mark brings us to the sea, that Mark is going to tell us something about what it is to be a disciple. There is a teaching going along with the sea. Okay? So, you have that in your head? 
If we go to the sea, Mark's going to tell us something about what it is to be a disciple. Then we get to chapter 4. What happens in chapter 4, verse 1? And he began to teach, where? By the sea. This side is killing the rest of you, just so y'all know. He is teaching by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down while the whole crowd was there, again, by the sea, on the shore. And he begins to, to teach them in parables. Now, we've already had this read to us uh, earlier in the video, so I'm not going to read it to you, but I want to give you just kind of a basic breakdown of this parable where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. In this parable, we call it sometimes the parable of the sower. If you've heard me preach this before, I like the parable of the soils because I think the focus is a little bit more on the soils. But let's walk through these just real quick. So the first one we have is the path. And on the path, we have some things that we know. The path, we see the birds devoured the seed. All right? So the first part, Heather, can you go to the first one? There we go. The birds devoured the seed. Second, we have the rocky ground. Shallow roots are there, and it is scorched by the sun. And then third, the thorns. The seed was choked out by the thorns. Now, we can read on in the passage to understand that each one of these soils tells us about a different kind of type of disciple or a type of follower. So I want to give you kind of just a little bit more of an understanding, kind of put it into some language that I think will help us of what Jesus is saying to us in this passage. All right, so let's go, let's go to that. So in this one, when we get to the path, we have the path we can see as an enticement of evil that is too much for their faith. Okay, some commentaries will call this, uh, this, the path, will call this the soil of the flesh. It's the enticement of evil is too much for their faith. The next ground that we have is the rocky ground. And in the rocky ground, sometimes this, this is called the world, but there is a temporary faith. But the pressure of this world becomes too much. There is a faith. That faith takes root. But the pressure of this world is too much for those roots. And then the third soil he gives us is the thorns. In the thorns, we see a genuine faith. This is somebody who has dug in, this is something I want to be a part of. There's real faith that is growing, but the demands of what it is to live out that life of faith, to live as a disciple, become too much. Now, here's my question. I think you all know I'm going there. As we look at these soils, where, where, are, where are you? Y'all heard me say this before, not where is your neighbor, where is your spouse, where is your friend, where, where are you? Do, do we read one of these and we say, you know what, pastor, that's something that I understand. That sometimes the enticement of evil or sometimes the pressure of this world or sometimes just what it is to live out my faith becomes too much. Where do we fall? Where do you fall 
in this parable. Now, some of you have noticed I've been underlining words that I want to make sure that I call attention to, and I've underlined a word here, the word pressure. And I want to talk about this for just a little bit, and some of you have heard me talk about this before. So a little, some of this will be a little bit of a review, but for some of you, this is brand new stuff. This word pressure is, we see there in the passage, but this word pressure is the Greek word philipsis. The Greek word philipsis is a word that we translate a couple different ways. One of those ways that we translate it, we see in Mark chapter 24, this is the King James Version, uh, because they trans, translate it in a kind of a traditional way that I want you to see. So Matthew chapter 24, verse 21 says, For then shall be a great, what? Tribulation. Philipsis. For then will be a great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor, or no, nor shall ever be. Philipsis sometimes translated as tribulation. Mark chapter 4, verse 17, we, say, we see this exact same word, philipsis, in this passage. But they have no root. They are short-lived when, in, as CSB translates this word, distress or pressure, philipsis or persecution comes because of the word they immediately fall away. Now, this word philipsis is a word that has captured many people's imaginations. There are books written on the word tribulation. And there's all kinds of theories about the word tribulation. But let me give you the Greek understanding of the word tribulation. Some of you have seen me do this before. This is going to call for active participation. All right. So everybody have both their hands with them this morning. All right. I want you to put your hands together like this. Don't, don't push them together too much, just, just lightly, all right? And then I want you to do this. Okay, what happens? Friction. And what, what happens because of friction? Heat, all right? So now, okay, everybody stop. That's kind of a funny sound for all of us. All right, so now I want you to push your hands together harder, and I want you to do it. It's a little harder to do this, okay? But does, what, what comes faster? The heat, okay? This... This is what I want you to hear. This is very, very important. These two hands, one hand is the world. The other hand is the kingdom of God. And when the world and the kingdom of God come together, there is friction. And that friction creates heat. And that friction creates pressure. And that pressure is translated sometimes as tribulation, but it is about this heat. One of my favorite preachers of all time, Daryl Johnson said this, and some of you have heard me say this before, one of the best lines on this word ever. He said, if you are a person living in the kingdom of God, in this world, there is going to be friction. There is going to be pressure upon your life. And sometimes we pray to say, God, please remove this from my life. And Daryl Johnson makes this beautiful statement that sounds a little scary, but I want you to hear the whole statement. He says to us, God cannot take that pressure from you. Because to take that pressure away from you is to change what it means to live in the kingdom of God. 
that God cannot take that pressure from you. God cannot take that friction from your life, but God promises to be with you in the midst of that friction, in the midst of that pressure. As the people of God, we will live as people of friction with this world. When does this end? Well, whenever Christ comes back. But until that moment, that pressure is going to be there. And I want to, to say all this to say to you, this is normal. When I was a teenager, one of my good friends, Lena, used to always say, if, God's, if the devil's not messing with you, you're not living right. And that kind of applies to this. If this pressure doesn't exist, if you don't feel the rub against the world, then we might not be living in the kingdom or living out the kingdom the way that God wants us to live it out. If we live in the reign and the rule of King Jesus and his kingdom, you will have to live with this friction. We have to live with it. It is a part of who we are as the people of God. We are people who live differently than this world. And if we become too comfortable with this world, then we have to be careful that we aren't compromising what it is to be, the God, to be God's people living in the kingdom of God. So we look at these three soils. The path. The enticement for evil is too much for their faith. The rocky ground. A place where there is temporary faith but the pressure of living this out becomes too much. As Jesus uses the word, the ellipsis, the pressure of living out God's kingdom becomes too much for us to handle, and we lose our faith. And then the third soil, the thorns, the genuine faith that falls short due to the demands of discipleship. So where are we? Where, where do we fall in this? Now, as y'all know, y'all have heard the story. There's a fourth soil that I've ignored up to this point. Verse 20 tells us, and those like seed sown on good ground, hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit. Now, I just want to pause here. If you were a farmer during the New Testament world, if, you, if somebody came to you and said, you're going to plant seed this year, what kind of yield are you expecting to get? This would be your normal answer. Well, if I get 5% back, I'm going to feel pretty good. 10, that's been a good year. But 15% doesn't get any better than that. 15% is about the max you could ever hope for in the ancient world. And Jesus says to him, and those like seeds sown on good ground, hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit. On a good year, 5%, maybe 10%, but on a great year, 15%. Is that what he says? No. It will produce fruit 30, double the best year you could possibly imagine. Double the best year. 
or maybe even double that year, or maybe even a hundred times what was sown. So I hope the question in every single one of our hearts right now is the same. Pastor, what does it mean to be good ground? I think the passage and the way Mark lays out these stories answers the question for us. Because notice what he says. And those like seeds sown on good ground, they, they do something, don't they? What's the first thing they do? They hear the word. And they don't just hear the word, they welcome the word. What does it mean to welcome the word? It means to plant it into your heart, plant it somewhere that matters, that we live in the midst of it. I had like three or four different ways I was going to take this sermon today, and one of the ways that I didn't do it, which I won't preach that whole sermon, that'll be some other, that'll be in four years when we're back on this passage, but one of the things that I kept messing with all week was asking myself the question, what are the properties of seeds? What, what does it mean to be a seed? And part of what we know it means to be a seed is a way that is a little tiny. But also, seeds mean different things to different people. In our home, we have attempted to have gardens multiple times in our 16 years in Gardendale. We've been successful with those gardens zero times in our 16 years in Gardendale. Pastor Ken, on the other hand, the man, and some of you, Dwight, your life, I mean, the man could be near master gardener. I don't know what a master gardener is, but in my mind, it's Ken Smith. Yes, it's Ken, this, where, I'll tell this story. Ken probably, here's my point, and then I'll tell you this story. Gardeners see things in other stuff that no one else sees. Ken Smith said to me this week when I was sitting at the hospital waiting, on David to, waiting for them to call us back when David was ready for surgery, Ken and I sat there and Ken said, I've been looking on Facebook Marketplace for some rotten hay. How many of you have looked on Facebook Marketplace for rotten hay? Not me, but he bought a bale of, rotten, of bad hay so he could put it on his soil because of the stuff in that hay so it will help his soil over the winter. Okay, that's what people that know what they're doing do. Okay, me, I just plant stuff and I forget about it, and then we have a bunch of weeds. That's how I garden. I say all that to say, a seed that is, doesn't seem very important to a lot of people becomes very, very valuable in the hands of the master gardener. And, and Jesus says to us, I, I want to plant that seed in your life. Something that doesn't seem that important to a lot of people, something that doesn't seem that important to the rest of the world, I want to plant that inside of your life. What some people might think is trash, because rotten hay is trash in my world. I want to plant something in your life that will grow. And so he says to us, this is what you do to be good soil. You start off by hearing the word. Secondly, you welcome it into your life. It changes you. It grows there. And as it grows, it produces fruit. It does something. 
it doesn't just reside there. It doesn't just live there. It produces, it comes out of that plant. Now, I could make a very good argument if you look at the rest of this chapter, after this one parable, Jesus gives us three more parables. And you could look at these parables and you could see these parables as Jesus explaining exactly what these three things look like. He talks about a light. What do you do with a light? Do you hide it? No. You put it out where people can see it. He talks about the seed, how the seed is, is thrown out. And as the seed is thrown out, it takes root. And, and the farmer doesn't even know what happens. But the next morning they show up and there's something breaking out of the ground. And the next day it's gotten a little taller and a little taller and a little taller until it has done what? Produced fruit. And Jesus tells us we, we don't even really know how that takes place, but we know that it happens. God is the one that does it. And then he gives us one more parable to kind of pull all of that together. So we have the parable of the sower, we have the parable of using your light, we have the growing seed, and then the last one is the mustard seed. You see, we can go through and we can read some of the great stories in Ezekiel about the cedars and the mighty trees of Lebanon. Some of you have been and seen sequoias. Some of you have been and seen these ginormous trees, and it's incredible. The redwoods, the sequoias. And Jesus says that the kingdom, it's, it's not like a redwood. It's not like a sequoia. It's like a little seed. A little seed that takes root in your life and grows. And it doesn't just grow so it stays where it is, but it welcomes the birds. It welcomes the people around it into its branches. To be good ground is to be that light and hear the word and let the light shine. To be good ground is to be like the seeds that are thrown, that grow overnight and we don't know how it happens, but it has taken root in your life and been welcomed. To be good ground is to be like that little mustard seed. It's not very valuable to John Parrish, but to the master gardener, to the one that knows how to care for it, the one that knows how to take care of it, to water it, to weed around it, it becomes invaluable. My hope and my prayer for us is that we become people who allow God's word to take root in our lives. Even when it doesn't seem like it makes sense, even when it seems mysterious. But that we see a God who is working and a God who is doing new things all around us. Today, as we close, we're going to sing the song that we sang last week little bit of a prep that y'all didn't know that we were preparing for this week. But the song, Good Ground. And my prayer for us this morning is that we are people who say, Lord, may I do exactly what Jesus has told us good ground looks like. May I hear the word. 
May I welcome the word into my life and may that word produce fruit and that other people will come to see the fruit and to see the work that you are doing. Today, as we close and as we sing, we're gonna close as we close most Sundays. Pastor James will be down at this altar. If you would like a pastor to pray with, I'll be down at this altar if you need to be anointed for healing, for physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever that might be, I would love the opportunity to be able to pray with you. And maybe for some of us, the other altars might just be a place that we need to open up our hearts. To say, I've struggled being the path, I've struggled being rocky ground, I've struggled allowing this world to take way more root in my life than the kingdom of God. I want to be good ground. I want to hear, welcome, and produce. I want to live in the kingdom of God the way that God wants me to live. Let us stand as we sing.